0: Translation. Translators note. Welcome to translators note. I'm Claire Bergerbelsky and our guest today is Jenna Leana Hoffer, who is among other things a poet, translator, interpreter, teacher, and the co-founder of the collaborative project Antena Aire. I spoke to Jenna Leana about language justice, about translation and interpreting, and about the intersections between them.
1: The working definition that I usually use for language justice is the right that everyone has to participate fully in all of the spaces where we are present in our own language or in our own languages. So it's a set of practices that enable us to get to a place where that's possible, which is it can be very complex depending on who's in the room and what kinds of built in inequities exist. Um, and it's also a respect for the language rights of all people um, and language rights include everything from our right to engage in civic and public spaces of all sorts in our languages, to vote, to receive medical care, to engage in the legal system, um, all of those things. Um, And they also include the connections between language and culture and um, language preservation, language um, activation or reactivation for languages that have been um, impacted by colonial violence. So all of that is built into the ways I think about language justice and also, the, that, that language justice can't exist without racial solidarity, without an awareness of the systems of privilege and oppression that divide people and create inequities based on race. And also, and especially recently, I've been pra- learning a lot of practices around disability justice, which also is can never be decoupled from language justice, partly because so many people who are disabled are impacted in the ways that they approach language, whether that's information processing or which language they use or how they use language or whether they need an assistance tool to be able to communicate all of those things. And the questions of access of what we all need to get into the room or into the Zoom to be able to be physically present and sort of emotionally and spiritually present, those are very closely tied to language and communication. So I feel like all of those things together exist in a constellation, but at heart, um, language justice is the series of concepts and practices that leads to communication equity. So everyone's participation can, can participate fully and with equity and seeks a space, this is always in process, where no one language will dominate over other languages. And that can be, that will look very different in different spaces or in different contexts. And there might be momentary instances where one language will dominate either by default or by choice because for practicality's sake or because there's a reason for that. So language justice also has built-in flexibility. As, as with language, it's never just one thing. So. I feel like I shared a little bit about what it means to me, because you can see, I'm hoping that it's very, very um, interwoven with the ways that I practice and enact and constantly learn and relearn my own politics and my own approach to relationship. And for me personally, language work, not just language justice work. So I started doing what we might call language work through a program called California Poets in the Schools, um, in which poets visit um, elementary school classrooms and do poetry workshops. I first encountered that program when I was seven in third grade and I have been writing poems ever since. So you could consider poem writing language work, I do. And I grew up um, as I often say, monolingual in a bilingual and bicultural family. And so there was a lot of different forms of rupture and, and breakage in my family history in language and culture and relationship. Um, and language and culture and relationship are completely intertwined. I mean, I often talk about language justice work as relationship building work because when we can understand another person and communicate with that other person and be understood by them, we're able to build relationships that don't erase our differences, but also allow us to inhabit our similarities or our shared concerns. So for me, I always felt that I was existing between two languages and two cultures, even though I, I grew up, I learned to speak in a fully bilingual way. I learned to speak Spanish and English at the same time, but then I lost lost my Spanish, quote unquote, um, or it was not nurtured, as often happens to kids of immigrant families of certain generations. I hope that happens less now, though I'm not convinced. Um, having kids in the public school system, I see that reproducing itself. But for me, so I started writing poetry, then I became a literary translator before I started doing interpreting work. So I started, do, I started translating poetry just because I was in Mexico and I was reading a lot of contemporary Mexican poetry and totally fell in love with it and just translated it for the pure pleasure of it. Then I went to Iowa, where you are now, and was in the writer's workshop as a poet and started taking some, I took the translation workshop that is for the international writing program recipients or participants and folks from the writing workshop and just totally fell in love with translating just completely. It was one of the first things in my life where I felt like I was right for it. And it was right for me. Like we loved each other. I loved it. And it loved me back. Requited love often can blossom into new spaces as we know. So it was later that I became an interpreter and also just really... Uh, interpreting works well with the way my brain works. That is not true for everyone, but that kind of radical simultaneity and radical multitasking sort of extreme sport of multitasking works well for the way that I process and encounter information. And also it works well with my politics and my desire to be present in a support role, not necessarily a leadership role in making space for conversations to occur and for political organizing to occur that might not be able to occur otherwise. And it wasn't until very far into my practice, my various practices as a language worker and as someone who practices language justice, that I really began to realize the ways that language justice gave me space to think about my own identity and my own history in ways that I had not had access to before. So my capacity to articulate myself as a white Latinx next person and to really deeply be in practice about what white solidarity with BIPOC people looks like came to me through language justice. And so for me, language justice and healing justice are deeply, deeply interrelated for those reasons. And also because Language lives deep inside our bodies and inside our experiences. It is, I mean, I, I often think about the first person I heard articulate language justice as a frame, Roberto Tijerina. He often talks about the ways that like, like we love in language, we raise our children in language, we fight in language, we flirt with one another in language, we sing, we dream. It, and it's in our bodies, it's, li- it's literally in our bones. And so it's very, very intimate. And so I think those are also some of the ways that language justice and healing justice connect for me, especially when you're practicing it with that kind of poet's consciousness to all the spaces, all the silences and all the things that are, are, that are expressed um, rather than just like dialing it in and doing a job. Like I go to court, I interpret what's said, I don't let it like really get filter in and then I leave.
0: I'm really curious about the ways in which literary translation, your literary translation practice factors into that, especially since there are so many metaphors that we use for translation, and so many of them are almost the opposite of how you describe language justice, and perhaps there are movements towards different metaphors and developing ways of thinking about translation that are closer to some form of justice, and so I'm curious about your thoughts about that.
1: Oh my gosh, I have so much to say about that. <laughs> well, let me read you a paragraph. I would really be excited if by the end of this interview, we might brainstorm some different metaphors for translation. And this is, yeah, this is something I've been thinking about for a really long time. It's almost, it, it's impossible not to immediately think of traduttore, traditore, translator, trader, as if there's anything else to be, right? As if there's, and, and the idea that so much is quote unquote lost in translation, as if we're not always already completely lost and refinding our way and losing it again, as if there's something to have been lost in the first place, like the ori- original quote unquote translation from experience to writing, if what we're translating is writing, that's, that already is, it's not lost. it's change, it's transformation. Experience is not the same thing as writing experience. And one of the writers, who I feel like speaks to that really beautifully is Leslie Scalapino, which many people find her work wildly impenetrable. And I think that this might be part of why, because it, it in, in and of itself is an experience speaking to the impenetrability of experience and the impossibility of directly representing experience in writing, even with the most direct, clear, narrative forms of writing, writing is its own experience that isn't experienced. So there's no, the essence there is totally ineffable. It's not like there's an essence of the translation that we're eroding away. It's not like it's a rock and our translation is the tide wearing the rock into sand. And like, you know, the rock in its integrity was lost when it became sand. Like, yes, those are different particles. I recognize the difference between sand and a rock. And that's not what, what's happening in the transactions or in the interactions. I think transaction is probably the wrong word, in the, the title workings of one language process on another language process. So I just said a bunch of things it isn't, which is not a good way of saying what it is. No, 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 my answer is no to all of that. Or yes, and, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's also like, if we can't learn to embrace what we lose, how are we actually going to survive? Because there is no being without loss. So to go back, so going back to translator trader is going back, you know, to the very beginnings of my formal thinking about translation. My informal thinking about translation started a really, really, really long time ago, basically in my home um, with a parent whose first language was not English. And then when I when I first started taking a class, like when I first met Lawrence Venuti and the translator's invisibility as a concept or as an articulated concept was when I first started really thinking about that translator trader and the whole idea of like lost in translation and all of those tired metaphors. This, the first book of translation that I published was this one. You might be familiar with it, Sin Portas Visibles. It was very shortly after I left Iowa. I moved to Mexico right after graduate school and made an anthology of contemporary poetry at that time, contemporary poetry by Mexican women. So this is from the introduction to this anthology. Translation, though an impulse toward an exterior, toward the foreign, does not primarily help us get out, except perhaps in the sense of getting out of habit or out of place. Translation rather helps us get in. It changes the setting, purposefully disrupting our previously established arrangements and articulations by introducing outside elements even as we read literatures outside our own to become familiar with what is going on in other minds in other places the impulse of translation is one of defamiliarization where the friction of the foreign on the familiar makes the familiar strange translation simultaneously casts out toward an exterior and in toward an interior translation is not a bridge on the other side of which lurks knowledge of other cultures. Our curiosity toward the foreign as readers and or writers, an indispensable element of any thoughtful life in a world so intricately textured, so immensely extraordinarily varied in its geographies and politics and possibilities, is not one that can be satisfied, instead, It is further and more informed curiosity ideally which greets us on the far side of that mobile slippery map, which is writing in translation. Um, And then I quote Pierre Joris, and then we skip a little bit. Um, As much as perhaps more than allowing readers a window into another culture, translation like a two-way mirror provides simultaneously a view out and a view in, doubling our attention back onto our own language and literature and ways of thinking poetry, even as it illuminates however partially in shadowed or stuttered or staggered light poetic practice elsewhere. So the metaphor that I I was resisting the metaphor of a bridge or window, like where we can just consume some other culture and understand it, even though I don't wanna negate the idea that when we read the literatures and otherwise experience cultural production, music, dance, whatever it is, film from other places, we can actually get a vision of how other people experience the world. And I don't, of course that's true. And it would be, we need to be reading Palestinian literature and we need to be reading Iraqi and Afghani literature. We need to be reading all the literatures in order to be able to understand ourselves and each other better. And at the same time, it's always blowing back an image of ourselves or an understanding of our own language. And I feel like there's other stuff happening as well. So it's not just that two-way mirror that I was writing about, but it's definitely not, it's definitely not a loss about which we might want to wring our hands, but rather one we might want to celebrate and learn from and maybe use it as a tool to think about grief, like what is lost and then what new new pathways are opened. And it is a way of understanding otherness and it is a way of understanding that we can never totally understand otherness and it is a way of understanding ourselves and also understanding that we ourselves are constantly changing and evolving and never static in our understanding. And I totally agree that there need to be new metaphors for what translation does. Or maybe there just need to be like many, many metaphors. So you might read the deformation zone that Johannes Gorenson and Joelle McSweeney wrote, which is available as a free PDF on the Ugly Duckling Press website. If you haven't read it, you it, I really recommend it. Where They talk about like bodily translation as bodily deformation and amputation and, you know, like gore in a sense, or we might read Don Miche, writing about translation as a form of decolonization through language. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of different ways. And I I feel like it's not about finding the metaphor for translation, but it's about encountering as many as we can, and then constantly renegotiating that as we actually do the work of translation, which often functions very differently than our lofty thinking about it might suggest.
0: Yeah, I love the idea that, and I was hearing it as you were speaking to your ands, and the idea of a multiplicity of, metaphors because i think everything about translation is a multiplicity of readings of choices of perspectives and why why should the way we talk about it be any different
1: absolutely and also i mean then this is the other reason i feel like the, to talk about the essence like that you're you're somehow losing the essence of a thing when you put it into another language is a forgetting that language itself is I don't know if it's a metaphor or if it's like it's a social agreement. The fact that these phonemes, we uh, we think they are meaningful. It's that's just a social agreement. There's nothing actually meaningful about the phoneme "hello" or translation or those are more than phonemes, but those you know those sounds, other than what we agree to say they mean. Like the fact that we were able to meet at 10.30 my time, 12.30 your time at the same place. It's just social agreement. Very important social agreement. Like I'm not suggesting we should like let go of that and everybody has their own understanding of everything. Like that would be challenging to say the least on a practical level. And also where is there possibility in thinking like, oh, okay, we made a social contract that these sounds are gonna mean these things. Oh, that social contract is built on inequity and oppression of certain beings over others and dehumanizing certain people okay we can remake the social contract let's do that let's get let's get right to it
0: english is also translating into english has its own baggage for lack of a better word especially with questions of justice especially with questions of colonialism and I'm wondering if that's something you grapple with in your own practice and sort of where your thinking is around that.
1: I mean, I grapple with that in every aspect of my own practice, of course. So, okay. So I want to start by giving an example actually from interpreting practice, not from translating practice. So... In a context where there are multiple languages, more than two languages, more than two spoken languages, sorry, there's often contexts where there's assigned language and two spoken languages, but that that I'm talking about different things. When there's more than two spoken languages, we practice a skill called relay interpreting. So I'll give you a concrete example. I work with an amazing organization that ha- holds all of their meetings because they're involved with a collaborative of young people from West Africa, the Caribbean, North and Central America and South America. Um, so the active language is used in that organization and for them to be able to have a conversation at all. We are actively using English, French, Haitian Creole, Portuguese and Spanish. So when someone is speaking Portuguese in the space, I am listening to my colleague interpreting Portuguese to English, and I'm interpreting English to Spanish so that people who use Spanish on that call can understand the person who's speaking Portuguese. And that's, and the Haitian Creole interpreters are listening to the same colleague interpreting Portuguese to English, but they're on a different channel interpreting into Haitian Creole and same for the French interpreters. So that's called relay. And the language that we share, in this case, all of us share English is called a pass-through language. So nobody, and and also some people on that call use language, use English as their, uh, uh, they they may be bilingual or multilingual in other languages, but if you don't speak those particular ones, you need to be listening in English if that's your shared language. Um, And so what you'll notice about English is it's a colonizer language. And often, I mean, in, in this space, Haitian Creole is a decolonizer language often will be in spaces where it's, say, Portuguese, Spanish, and English. And those are three colonizer languages. But almost always, a colonizer language is the pass-through language. And so if you think about an example where someone is sharing in Zapoteco and someone else is sharing in Haitian Creole, you're going to have a Creole-English interpreter and a Zapoteco English interpreter, or a Zapoteco Spanish and Spanish English interpreter, depending on who you have available. But so you're passing through the colonial languages, so that two decolonizer languages can, where people who use them can be in communication with one another. And I, what I, the reason I bring up that example, first of all, is just to illustrate how totally badass interpreters are, because we really are. And also to illustrate that. You can never forget the violence of colonization and the violence that language dominance does to non-dominant languages and cultures. And you can always use a tool that was formerly used for co- colonial violence when the tool is language. Maybe some of the other tools of colonial violence. This is not true for so I should not generalize. But language specifically, even colonizer languages can be a tool for decolonization. And and I've seen it happen. I have seen relationships build between people who don't share a language, who are Black or Indigenous, who need to be organizing together, using relay interpreting, and sometimes using a white-bodied interpreter as a tool for building that solidarity. And so what language justice has to teach us, especially white-bodied people, about how to practice racial solidarity and how to practice um, other forms of of co-conspiring with BIPOC folks, I think is really important. And also to teach us... for many of us, it's not an option to abandon our colonizer languages. English is the tool we have, we better learn to use it to work against colonization, because otherwise, what are we left with? But I also think it, it feels incomplete to me to just say like, this is a colonizer language, I won't use it, because feel, it feels like then we're not exercising sort of all, all of its potential elasticity So that's one way of thinking about that baggage. Another way is in terms of how we practice translation. So if what you're going for is a kind of seamless translation where, and I mean, I'll I'll give you a great example. There was a really amazing, actually, language justice-informed motion to the Los Angeles City Council that one of our council members, an extremely progressive, really amazing uh, woman of color council member, proposed around deepening interpreting practice the interpreting practices at the city council meetings are terrible frankly and if you are not a user of english and you want to make public comment good luck um not to mention if you want to understand anything that's said because everything is said in english and the interpreters only show up when someone wants to share in spanish as if we all don't have a right to know what's going on at our city council hello so it's just like the thinking around that is so clear around who's being prioritized right like language justice And linguicism, which is a term many many of your listeners may be familiar with, but I'll just define it in case someone isn't. Um, Linguicism is oppression based on the language or languages we use, and/or the ways we use language. So the ways that African American vernacular English is denigrated in schools—that's linguicism. The ways that people who speak with a Southern accent are often treated as less intelligent than people who speak with my accent, a California accent—that is linguicism. As is denigrating Spanish and other languages when spoken in the education system or not letting everyone have all the access to what happens at our city council meetings. If you live in the city, it's your city council. So an example of a time you might want to have seamless translation and not destabilize the language at all is the press release around the motion that council member Nithya Rahman wrote around having more interpreters and, and really making a more robust language justice practice on the city council. You don't want any destabilizing in that language. You want it to say pretty much as much as you can, exactly the same thing in Spanish or the other languages as it says in English, because you just want to get the information out there. But that kind of translation is not usually appropriate for literary translation. And it's never appropriate when you're translating experimental writing or as JD, my companion in Antenna Aide and many other uh, walks of life says non-normative writing. So they're trying to move away from language of experiment and move toward language of non-normativity or divergent writing, or however you wanna think about diverging from normative standards. It's rarely appropriate to have a seamless perfect translation. And one of the things that, one of the compliments that I most distrust and find distasteful is when someone reads a translation of mine, and and this has happened, and says, it's as if it was written in English. Or maybe that's a person who just has like a very advanced understanding of what English can be when it's at its decolonized best. Let's think of it that way. That's a much more pleasurable way to think about it. But translation's capacity to destabilize English as we bring syntaxes and word usages and literal words and thought constructs and imagina- imaginative possibilities from other languages and other cultures, which have different cosmovisions and different substrata, different structures the ways that that can disintegrate the, the calcifications on the structures of English are really powerful. And so I also think that we can actually address the baggage that comes with using English by in the way that we translate and the work that we choose to translate also, because work that sort of demands the kind of Literalness, if you call, if you want to call it that, um, that a press release about a motion on a city council demands, and that's a legitimate demand. Like I, I'm not going to like provide experimental writing to my clients who are asking me to just translate a text, a publicity text for an event that they're holding. That's not appropriate. But literature that demands that level of To go back to a word I used before, I think not very well, but a a transactional or instrumental understanding of language is going to force us into using English in a way that's going to feel like we're reproducing colonizer norms and practices rather than destabilizing them. And then the third thing I wanted to say about that is... I think part of the baggage of colonization and part of the baggage of being on the receiving side of colonial privilege, regardless of what your background is, the ways that that impacts my use of language makes me think a lot about where to be silent and where to speak, like where is my speech useful and where am I taking up space or taking up air that somebody else could be breathing or using for their own speech? How do I position myself in my work? So in the translation is it evident that i'm aware that i have that i have a lot of power over the text in as i'm bringing it into english and how am i demonstrating that i'm aware of that power and that i'm aware of my own positionality and the ways that my thinking about myself and about language and about my own my own literary histories and all of the, that stuff is always coming out in the way that i translate whether i'm thinking about it explicitly or not
0: I asked Jen to talk a bit about any exciting current projects that they were working on. They told me about a collaboration with their Antena Aireco collaborator, J.D. Pluker, to translate Peruvian artist Giuseppe Campuzano's book, The Travesti Museum of Peru, a work which is conceived as a museum of travesti cultural instances and for which their translator's notes will take the form of a glossary, and about a book of poetry they are translating by the queer Uruguayan writer Virginia Lucas, which they have translated as ah me rich ah your exchange value perhaps what struck me most about this second project were jen's footnotes so when you asked me
1: about metaphors for translation or sort of the ways that i'm conceptualizing translation the other passage i thought of which i realize right now actually doesn't have anything to do with metaphors for translation so i'm not exactly sure why my brain went to this but this was the other passage my brain went to and it also will show you, I think, both why I'm so excited about this project and also why I, I may have set myself a slightly impossible task with this project. So one of the footnotes to the first poem in the book, which is a prose, a long prose po- like introductory prose poem after, so this is footnote number nine. So I've already footnoted eight things, right? This footnote says, how do I decide where to intrude Which interruptions, if any, will be helpful? Which interventions illuminate? Which moments of snag do I footnote and which do I leave without annotation? Do my footnotes reflect my own assumptions underlying what is or is not common knowledge for a Spanish language reader or for an Uruguayan reader? What is, I wonder, the imagined audience for the original book? What is the imagined audience for the translated book? Do I footnote every reference I had to look up thus suggesting that the limits of my knowledge are the parameters for explication problematically positioning myself then as the imagined or in this instance very overtly enacted audience for both the original and the translation do i footnote terms i imagine a non-uruguayan spanish reading public might not know in an attempt to replicate an imagined uruguayan readers experience of the book for imagined non-Uruguayan US American readers? Do I choose which references to explain in a note, which translation choices to explode in a note based on my own intuitions, as I navigate these texts in a nod or more than a nod to all the ways that translation practice relies on intuition, channeling and feeling my way through unfamiliar territories, My approach constitutes interventionist translation, perhaps a form of ultra translation about which Antena Aide has written and is thus a little clunky and a little uncomfortable and a little lacking and a little excessive. It goes a little too far while not getting near enough. It's not quite right as translation never gets things quite right. It's not about rightness or fixity or one-to-one correlation, not about digesting the source or hitting the target but about the always-in-process of failing attempt to recognize the substance and context of something from somewhere else and bring that recognition here while remaining wondrously aware of the processes of transfer and of what resists transfer.
0: Translator's Note is produced by Claire Berger-Belsky, Abby Ryder-Huth, and Julia Conrad. This show is an affiliate of Exchange's Journal of Literary Translation and is made with the support of the University of Iowa Department of World Languages, Literatures, and Cultures and the International Writing Program. Thanks to Nate Repaz for the theme music and credit for other music used in the show can be found on our website. Also on our website, you can find links to some of the resources and projects mentioned throughout the episode. As always, Translator's Note also wants to thank Aruna G, Jan Stein, and the MFA in Literary Translation community at the University of Iowa for their support. And thank you so much to Jenna Eliana Hoffer for such a wonderful conversation, and to Abby Haber for putting us in touch. I want to end not on these thank yous, but with one final thought from Jenna Eliana.
1: So I just want to encourage anyone who is starting out to move toward what feels most discomfortable, thinking about Anthena's Manifesto for Discomfortable Writing, move toward what feels like it will most heal and also honor the ruptures that have existed in your life. Traduction.